0: Friends, let's indeed turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. You'll remember in Acts chapter 10, we read the incredible story of Cornelius, the Gentile, and his entire family coming to faith, being baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit. And now we read more of what happened immediately after that account, starting in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them. And So Peter recounts in chapter 11 what just happened in chapter 10, and it comes to a climax in verse 15. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray together. Lord, we are here because you have granted the Gentiles a repentance that leads to life, a casting off of all that we had and were and held dear and to run to Jesus and find in Him the fullness of your lavish, kind, tender-hearted forgiveness. Praise be to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, I love the book of Proverbs. I'm reading the book of Proverbs this week, and I love the way that Proverbs has this kind of subversive edge. It draws you in, It gets you thinking about one thing, and then it hits you with a twist and surprises you. And that's often how it teaches us through those twists, through those surprises. So let me give you an example. Proverbs chapter 6 that I just read, verse 16 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. So we're thinking, wait a minute, is it six or is it seven? How many things does God hate? And in Hebrew poetry, the six is an invitation into the zinger, which is going to be the seventh. So you read Proverbs 6.16 and we get the six, prideful eyes, lying tongues, murdering hands God hates, a person that plans evil, a person that's quick to evil, a perjurer. What's the seventh going to be? I mean, that's quite a notorious list. You've got murder and you've got perjury and you've got hands that are quick to shed blood. It must be something big, right? I mean, I'm thinking like adultery or idolatry or human sacrifice. The seventh abomination to God is one who sows discord Among brothers, you walk into a body and you start to go to work on that body and you start to tear down what God is building up and you start to criticize what God is encouraging and you try to separate what God has joined together and God says, I hate that. It's an abomination to me. Now, I want you to. Hold on to that dark thought for a moment because we're going to dive into Acts chapter 11, which will deal with that. You've got Peter and his six friends and they were just with Cornelius and they witnessed a miracle they never would have imagined in their entire lives. They're in Caesarea and a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, outside the people of God and God's promises among the Jews a Gentile has actually come to faith. That's incredible. I don't think Peter ever thought he would live to see that day. Peter had been warned about Gentiles. Peter had avoided Gentiles. Peter never hung out with Gentiles. We don't think that Peter was ever once inside a Gentile home until Acts chapter 10. And now, miracle of miracles... Gentiles have embraced Jesus. They've been filled with his Holy Spirit. The very people that Peter's mom always said be suspicious of them and have nothing to do with them have now been brought into this perfect family fellowship within the people of God. You can't make this stuff up. Jew and Gentile, one kingdom. No wonder, verse one, that report spreads like wildfire. I mean, Boom! It just goes throughout Israel. Can you believe Gentiles are actually coming to faith? It is so shocking that our author of the book of Acts, Luke, who himself is a Gentile, is very careful and very extensive to write the story. We just preached on this last week. We just saw in Acts chapter 10 that Luke dedicates 48 verses to the careful telling of Cornelius and household coming to faith. And then when you turn to chapter 11, he does it all over again. He gives us an 18 verse retelling of this Gentile conversion story. That's 64 verses in the book of Acts. To put that in comparison, Paul's conversion, which I would say is a pretty big deal for the life of the church, gets 19 verses in the book of Acts. He's still miffed about that. 64 for Cornelius, less than a third of that for Paul, 64 to 19. This is, Luke is telling us, a big freaking deal. Gentiles as part of the body. So, Peter and friends, they come dancing into Jerusalem, thrilled about this report that they get to share, and who should meet them at the threshold of the city but the circumcision party which are Jews who have come to faith in Christ but are bringing their Judaism with them and they believe in Jesus plus Judaism for salvation. And what do they say? Verse 3, Peter, you went to the uncircumcised and you ate with them. Humph. We saw you. It kind of reminds me of that scene in 2 Samuel, where King David gets the ark and he brings it to Zion, the city on the hill, and he dresses up in an ephod and he's dancing into Jerusalem with the people. There's music, there's celebration. It's fantastic. And who should meet him at home but his wife, Michael, who says, well, 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 look who undignified themselves today. If you listen, can you just hear the joy sucked out of the room? It's like when your wife comes home and says, I've been looking my entire life for this outfit, and I found it, and it fits, and it makes me happy. And the first thing you say is, well, how much did it cost? It's gone. Joy before the comment, joy after the comment is gone. I'm sorry, babe. For the first five to ten years of our marriage, I'm sorry. There's this mountain of what God has done among the Gentiles. It is incredible that he has now drawn the first fruits of the nations to himself. This will reverberate through all of history. This will touch every single soul in this room. This is God's magnificent victory in Christ. And there's this molehill over here. How it was done, where it was done, who did what. And the circumcision party just savors finding that molehill and driving it home. You see, these critics don't want to talk about what's right with God. They want to talk about what they think is wrong with Peter. That's why they don't mention God or anything that God did. They don't even mention God's name. They instead launch in with you, Peter, we want to talk about you. They don't talk about these God's new Gentile saints. They simply say, you went to uncircumcised men. They don't want to talk about God's glorious invitation to this new table fellowship. Instead, they say, you ate with them. They're able to, and this is hard to do. This is a lifelong time of critical practice. In one sharp barbed sentence, these circumcision party critics were able to take the majesty of God and reduce it to a purely human exchange. They sound like Jesus' critics, right? Who did miracles and spoke words people had never heard before and all the critics could say is, your disciples didn't wash their hands and they're not keeping Sabbath observance like we keep. They're finding molehills. And so, friend, I don't want to, because it is deeply convicting to me, but we need to think on that most hateful, lurking power that is a critical spirit in our midst. There is a deep, vile soul-sucking, joyless poison that is in a critical spirit, in the Demonic resolve to find what is wrong with each other instead of what is right with God doing in us in Christ, to look for opportunities to criticize, to slander, to gossip, to lie, to tear down, to nitpick, to incessantly correct things that just don't matter. It's in us and it's in our midst. Jerry Bridges writes in The Pursuit of Holiness, one of the most difficult defilements of the spirit to deal with is the critical spirit. We're quick to see and speak of the faults of others, but slow to see our own needs. How sweetly we relish the opportunity to speak critically of someone else, even when we are unsure of the facts. Do you know what he means by that word relish? Have you ever felt that in the shadow of your heart where you catch someone doing, saying, believing, thinking something differently than you would have done it? And it's like this little giddy excitement that you get to point out what's wrong with another person. That sickness, that rot, that poison, it is inside Of every single one of us. Now, I want to understand a little bit about what motivated these men to greet Peter and friends this way. I know it's dangerous to think on motives because. It is impossible to judge a person's motives and it can be very hard to discern, but if we can locate some motives they might have had in the moment, we might be able to locate some motives that we have in the moment when we reach for criticism instead of praise. So think about some motives for biting criticism and you grab the one or two or four that fits you most. Maybe number one, they just had a small view of God in this moment. They thought that God thought like they thought. Have you ever thought that? Like, if it's outside of my mind, it must be outside of God's mind. If it's something different than I would do, it's probably something different than God would do. They don't even have any questions for Peter. They don't want to learn anything or hear anything or know anything. They already know because they think they and God are on the same wavelength and the knee-jerk reaction is criticism. That's a very small view of God. Number two, how about jealousy? That's the big one. I don't mind God doing great, gracious, wonderful things in the city. I just want him to do them through me. I want me to be there at the center of all of these things. And that makes Peter such an easy target for jealousy. He's already one of the 12, and not only one of the 12, but he becomes one of the inner circle of three. He's always the spokesman. He's always at the right place at the right time. He's getting too big for his britches. Somebody needs to take him down a notch. I've actually heard people say to prideful people, God put me here to be the Holy Spirit for you. (laughs) I'm here to bring you down a notch. I've heard spouses say that about each other. That's an awful thing to say. You're not the Holy Spirit. You do a terrible job of it. The Holy Spirit doesn't nitpick people like you do. Stop saying that. I read about this week a theologian. He was given an opportunity to write the faith section of a newspaper. So he wrote a few articles and got slammed in the comment section. I mean, they destroyed this guy. So after three, he gave up and walked away. And the editor came back to him and said, hey, I noticed that you're not turning in any more articles. You know, I love your stuff and what's going on? And he said, well, you know, people nailed me in the comment section. And the editor just laughed and she said, you know, the average reader of our newspaper has a master's degree and the average commentator can't spell Why did you let them take away the platform that God had given you? Jealousy is jealousy. How about number three? Pride. Oh, pride. Surely that touches all. Surely pride haunts every criticism. Surely pride gives us this superhuman ability to ignore the log in my own eye so that I can try to find the speck in your eye. Surely pride gives me this supernatural hubris that I could stand in the temple and pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. I'm not like people who sin. Pride, pride is a devious thing but I think there might also be a fourth reason that is the most boring of the bunch, and that is that bitter people make bitter critics. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm at my most critical self when I'm at my most miserable self. That's what I reach for. If I'm miserable, I'm going to make you miserable. I don't know how, but I'm going to find a way. So if dad had a hard day at work and he pulls up in the driveway, quick kids, act busy, grab something because he comes in the door like a prowling lion seeking someone to criticize. Bitterness begets bitterness. Those might be the motives and the reasons that we turn on each other, as Paul says, to bite and devour, But I think the real tragedy of a critical spirit that we see here is it's a missed opportunity. I was so busy looking for what is blameworthy, I totally missed what is praiseworthy. Paul says in Philippians 4, Why don't you spend all your earthly days finding what's praiseworthy? But I was so busy looking for what was blameworthy that I missed an opportunity to worship the Lord for what he is doing, and I'll never get that back. It's gone in the sea of history, and a chance, another chance to bless the name of Jesus is gone. But friend, I have a word of good news for us this morning, especially to us who constitute a room full of bitter critics. And that word is the kindness of God in the gospel. Remember that the circumcision party couldn't even bring themselves to mention God in verse 3. They tried to separate Peter from God and said, I just want to focus on you. I don't want to focus on the God who has redeemed you. They try to isolate him, to criticize him. They couldn't bring up God, but in verses 4 to 17, Peter can't shut up about God. They go on the attack about Peter, and Peter's not really interested in self-defense. He does something like this God offense. He doesn't want to talk about what's not wrong with him. He wants to celebrate what is right with God. The critics are saying, you did this, and Peter is saying, no, but God did this. It was God who gave the vision. And God who declared all food clean and God who snapped me to attention and sent me to Caesarea and God gave me the words to say and God dropped his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles to the surprise of everybody and God brought Jesus' words to my mind. God is everywhere here. That's why he can say in verse 17, who was I to stand in God's way? Which, hint, hint, critic, is a backhanded way to say, who are you to stand in God's way? I'm not going to do it. Why are you trying? If God wants to shower his lavish gospel kindness in ways and means and avenues that absolutely surprise us all, the problem is not going to be with God's gospel. It's going to be with the sideline critic. God will keep doing his grace and it's the critic who's going to need to change. And that means, and this is good news, that the gospel is as precious to us today, even as critical Christians, as when we first believed. Because Christ himself, by God's appointment, when he stood among us, had every right in the world because he had no speck in his eye, to point out the log in our eye and accuse us into the ground. He alone had the right to stand in the temple and pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of these sinners. He alone could stand with the crowd at the stoning of the adulterous woman and he could have cast the first stone because he had no sin. But what Peter wants to say in his report is, there's a kindness of God that resurprises me every single day. He offers this lavish love to humanity. I kind of thought he was going to give it to Jews. I had no idea he was going to give it to Gentiles. And when I saw it, I re-remembered this gospel for the nations that covers our sin and the things, the criticisms that God could have held against us, and he forgives us of them. That's the gospel. No wonder Paul makes an immediate connection between criticism, and the gospel, between our tendency to bite and devour and what God has done in Christ in Ephesians 4.32. He says, church, be kind, tender-hearted. I want you to forgive one another. Why? Because that's what good Christians do. Why? Because that makes for an efficient church. Why? Because you're going to feel better about it the next day. Why am I kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you? If you have felt anything, anything at all of God's kindness, if there is the smallest spiritual pulse in you, and you have sensed kindness and forgiveness and tenderheartedness from God to wake you up in your right mind, to not hold your sins against you, to bring you here into a place of worship together with your family, if you have received anything from him, that is the means and the power and the avenue to turn and share that same grace with another. That's the power not your New Year's resolution, the power of God in Christ. There's this awesome point in a Jackie Hill Perry song. She sings a song, Thy Neighbor, and in it there's like this interlude where it switches over to H.B. Charles, who's a phenomenal pastor, and it's a segment of his sermon, and he basically makes the point, if God has brought his spirits, and he has filled you as a believer, and then he's filled everybody else who's in this church with his spirit as believers, the spirit in you is going to resonate with the spirit in them, and you're going to make a hard case that the spirit in you is antagonizing, criticizing, tearing down the spirit in another person because the spirit enjoys perfect communion with himself. The Jesus in me is not going to criticize the Jesus in you. Now, the flesh in me that resists him is all too happy to do that, but I'm like a magnet with a fellow believer. Even believers I don't like and don't get along with, we're just being pulled together by the Spirit because we have perfect communion in Christ by His Holy Spirit, and I can't get away from that as much as I try. That's why Peter says about 15 times the Gentiles have the Spirit. The Gentiles have the Spirit. The Gentiles have the Spirit. If this was just a simple gospel presentation and it wasn't clear what happened, we can still antagonize one another. But once the Spirit falls, the same Spirit that's in me is in this person, well, then there's nothing else I can do because that Spirit is going to join us together and we better set about building something because the Spirit in me is not going to tear down the spirit who is in you. We criticize, we bite and devour. God's gospel not only tells us to knock it off, but gives us real means and power to change and to live a different way so that we can see man's repentance and rejoicing in verse 18. I'd like to read verse 18 as like a giant gospel redo, okay? Here's try number one. Hey guys, Gentiles are getting saved. Verse three, you went to the uncircumcised and you ate with them. Eh, wrong. That's the flesh, that's the devil, that's tearing down what God is building up, that's trying to cancel what God has joined together. We're going to try that again, okay? Try number two. Hey guys. The Gentiles are getting saved. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Sometimes the best repentance is just to shut my big mouth. And they glorify God. You said that too excitedly, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) And they glorify God saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who here this morning could use a gospel redo? Who has bit somebody this week with their criticism? And that person might even be here this morning with teeth marks. A spouse, a child, a roommate, a coworker, someone in your small group. They limped in here this morning feeling the wound that you gave them. But hear the gospel, friends. God's not going to do to you what you did to them. You turn back to him and he offers lavish forgiveness and kindness and tenderheartedness. And as he heals you, Maybe in that power, you can turn around and heal somebody else. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you put me in an awful spot this morning by calling me to preach on something that I'm terrible at. And you know I only like to preach on things that I'm good at. And so, Lord, I pray and I plead that you would tame my tongue, that I would be a man who is slow to speak, angry words and quick to speak, building, healing, renewing words that the kindness that you give to me in Christ is felt on the hearers as I meet with them this week. Do that in me, do that in us. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen.